Welcome to God Pods, Faith Conversations from Boston College's Church in the 21st Century Center. Hello, everyone. Welcome to God Pods. My name is Chanel, and I am a doctoral student in systematic theology at Boston College. I'm very excited to interview Dr. Craig Ford Jr. today, who is also a graduate of the doctoral program here at Boston College. Hi, Craig, how are you? Could you tell us a bit about yourself and your research? Absolutely, it's great to be here and thank you for having me on God Pods. So currently I'm stationed, I teach at St. Norbert College in the Theology and Religious Studies Department. I'm an ethicist by training, and my areas of interest are in Catholic moral theology, uh, queer theory, which looks at gender and sexuality in critical perspective, and critical race theory, which tries to bring race as a social construct into our um, frameworks very intentionally as a way to understand how our contemporary world is um, mapped. Um, Other than that, I, I teach a lot of courses in Christian ethics and then also in ecclesiology. So my, my biography really at this point is um, loving being in the classroom, trying to adapt my teaching to our current moment and trying to find innovative ways to really get people to start thinking about some of the deep moral questions. You know, I tend to tell people that um, if it makes people uncomfortable at Thanksgiving to talk about it, like race, gender, sexuality, then that's probably something that I study and something that I'm really interested in people learning how to have conversations about. Wonderful. Um, I want to bring us back to this idea of having conversations about the present moment, as you said. Um, And we are living in very interesting times, as you know. And I want to begin by reflecting on the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And of course, these Black deaths have been circumscribed by the pandemic. And in fact, George Floyd's autopsy report indicated that he was positive for COVID-19. So here we have this black man who was subjugated by police violence um, and the coronavirus, the the current pandemic. And so I wanted to ask you, how do we make sense of these intersecting elements? And how do we even do theology at a time like this? Yeah, I think your question has such a density. And I think the image that you give of a of a, of a man who's been killed, black man who's been killed, who's also positive for COVID-19. I think that image that you give us shows how complex the world is at the moment, that doing theology in this moment has to be done not only with tremendous social relevance, not only with um, a great sort of, not, not only with a strong theoretical framework, but even more than the two of those things, we have to do it knowing that it's completely urgent, that the, the stakes of our conversations, the stakes of our discussions have a human toll, right? Like we can sit and talk about COVID-19 and talk about police brutality, but what the image of George Floyd dying at the hands of a police officer and also having COVID, right? It tells us that this is really real, right? And people's lives are at stake. And I think that when people turn to our faith for um, insight, what we have to do as theologians is always show how the things that we love and preserve in our tradition can help us interpret the reality right now that we're in. Absolutely, I agree with you that there are real human lives at stake in the midst of this moment right now. And I've been thinking too about how 
perhaps theologians are also called to be the articulators of hope right now. That as we um, oppose injustices, we're also really called to, to proclaim and insist that joy will come in the morning. And so I think, you know, amidst all the uprising, we also need to ask ourselves, um, how are we going to participate in the creating of a, of a new world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and I, and I think that that involves telling some really hard truths about this world, you know. Um, I think that, if anything, the urgency of all of the protest movements, the vigils, right, the, the conversations we're having on Facebook and beyond with our family members, right, the urgency of the election, all of this is, is pushing us towards this question um, that, you're, that you're raising. So I agree with you completely, right? How do we point to a world that is going to give us hope, right? Well, it seems like we need to really come to an agreement about, or at least come to some sort of common frame or elements for saying, what is this reality that we're living in right now? So yes, I agree. Absolutely, thank you. Um, I wanna go back to this idea that you raised about the tradition and how it might be the source of insight um, during this time of, of deep chaos and confusion um, and crisis. Uh, and I wonder if a, a lot of theologians might be thinking about Catholic social teaching and whether or not it can be a resource at this moment. And so from your perspective, how do we reconcile the dignity of work and the rights of workers with the reality that many essential workers or people who have been deemed essential workers are also people of color? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, you, 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 highlight, you highlight something that uh, has a deep um, provenance within our tradition, talking about work and the dignity of work, which goes all the way back to the beginning of Catholic social teaching, uh, modern Catholic social teaching at the end of the 19th century, with this reality that we have a significant disparity in how this virus is affecting black and brown people, right? Um, and so that Catholic social value of work, in my mind, really highlights two things. One is that working is something that we do to express who we are. It's not just something we do simply for work, but work is something that, that um, somehow helps us live out our vocation. Work is something that allows us to, to show that we can take things that are in our minds or with our hands or with our bodies and produce something that can help the wider world, right? Um, and then the other thing that brings up in my mind is that working conditions have to be just that when we go to work, what that means for us is that we can expect a certain type of community care for how we do our work, right? Um, I think about, for example, um, you know, the bus drivers who are um, working public transportation, who are now frontline workers alongside, obviously, the physicians and the doctors and the nurses, I'm thinking, of course, about, you know, people who are overrepresented in service industries and uh, custodial work, right? All these tend to be people who are people of color. And the dignity of work pushes us to ask, are these people working under just conditions, right? And I think that the answer to that question is, is frankly, no. I think that the dent, I think that when we look at how people are, are being pushed to go to the front lines without an, an apparatus in place to make sure that they are safe, I think we as a society bear responsibility 
for that. So to the extent that we live in the United States under, I guess you could say at best, um, policies that encourage self-management of the virus, basically the conditions under which we work depend on the conscientiousness of whatever employer that you happen to work for. And that is not just for people who have to work, right? The, the choice for these people is if you don't go to work, you don't make a living. And so I think what Catholic Social Teaching is challenging us to do is how do we form these environments where people who work, work these lines are safe, right? Recognizing that also these people who are on the front lines, who are people of color, have also been the victims of uh, systematic racism and people who are, have been at the, the bottom of our society's socioeconomic ladder, right? And so how do we find ways for them, for their working conditions to be just um, means that we need to have a concerted policy. And I think that's what Catholic social teaching is pushing us towards, right? That maybe the self-management of this is not the sustainable option for us. Right. I really uh, appreciate how you framed this overview of Catholic social teaching through a lens of safety and care for the vulnerable. And I think that, you know, Catholic social teaching helps us to, to, to sift through how the economy really shouldn't make, increase the precarity of vulnerable people. Um, and I think that you're helping us to think theologically about racial capitalism and about how the economy and capitalism are intertwined with racism and where in the tradition we kind of find the stance to kind of sift through that and say, this is actually what just working is supposed to look like. Exactly. And when you highlight, you know, the dignity of work, right, I think of the preferential option for the poor and vulnerable and the common good as these two elements that really emerge strongly when I think about the moment that we're in. Because what the preference option for the poor and vulnerable highlights for us is that when we make decisions, we have to give greater weight to how our decisions impact the poor and people who are um, living at various levels of precarity. And I think we're in a society right now where there, there are competing goods at stake, right? I think people... I think people don't want people to die from this virus or from COVID-19, but people also have to find a way to get to work. They have to find a way to support their families, right? They can't rely on, you know, the, the functioning of the government to make sure that they are safe. So they feel they have to somehow get back into this economy. But it's precisely that getting back into the economy that introduces the catch-22 of placing black and brown bodies at the front line at a disproportionate rate. And so when I think about preferential option for the poor and vulnerable, we have to say, yes, there is a good of, of going back to work and there is a good of doing like what it is your vocation is supposed to do, uh, calls you to do. But at the same time, how do we find a way to not make that a trade-off for the health of other people? And the preferential option for the poor and vulnerable might tell us that we need as a society to place, put structures in place where people can survive during a pandemic without having to put themselves at greater risk. 
and what that looks like concretely could 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 mean like a robust way, a more robust way of having income assistance. And I know that's been done in countries around the world where there's this sort of basic income that's been given out during the pandemic, right? So people don't have to choose between surviving and risking their lives. And that's what the preference jobs for the poor and vulnerable actually opens up for us as a horizon, is that we don't have to choose between those. And that principle helps us to say, yes, we can make the right decision that protects the most vulnerable and allows for us to make it. We might not be living, you know, the best lives we've ever imagined, but we'd all be able to make it until we get to something like a viable solution to this um, COVID-19. So I think to kind of build on um, the, the point that you raised around the preferential option for the poor, uh, how, if at all, do you see it intertwined with the other tenet of Catholic social teaching, which pertains to human dignity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think because we value each person equally, we have to emphasize that paying attention to those who are most vulnerable are, is our number one priority as a society. Um, it is in a certain way, um, a way to, to put into Catholic speak the difference between the all lives matter and black lives matter kind of dispute that people seem to have, you know, if people say, yes, everyone has human dignity, like everyone's lives matter. Right. Well, what we're saying um, is that, yes, if you want everyone's life to matter, what we have to do is pay attention to the sector of our society that is struggling, that is hurting in order to make good on that commitment to all lives matter, in order to make good on that commitment to realizing concretely the dignity that every human person has, right? And when we look at some of these structural problems, right, that are race-based, which means that it's independent of anyone's prejudice towards black people or anything that they've done that hurts black people or is meant to denigrate black people, right? When we just look at how outcomes happen, we see really stark race-based disparities in the U.S. context, right? So like one that I, that I always think of, right, is median net worth of a household, right? The median net worth of a white household is $171,000, but the median net worth of a black household is only $17,600, right? This is independent of any white person hating a black person or anything like that. This is just how the system works, right? Um, same thing, just another example, right, is that, you know, even though you know, 8.1% of white people live at or below the poverty line, right? 20.8% of black people do, which means that fewer than one in 10 white people are living in poverty, but one in every five black people are, and this is independent of all of that. So how as a society do we commit ourselves to the preference option for the poor and to the common good and to the dignity of the human person? Well, we then need to enact policies that reverse these effects that we're seeing at the structural level, right? And that's why, like Ibram Kendi talks about, right, it's not enough for us to just be not racist, right, to not hate people based on their skin color, but we need to become anti-racist. We need to actually dedicate ourselves to policies and proposals and adopting ways of life that reverse these death-dealing effects, right? And your question, right, the dignity of the human person grounds all of that. Thank you, um, especially for raising those statistics to highlight the disparity that exists that definitely is entrenched in life in North America, for sure. 
I, I want to pivot quickly for a second and I want to talk about solidarity. Mm-hmm. We know that people of color and the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions are the ones who have been disproportionately impacted by uh, COVID-19. And so what does authentic solidarity look like in this moment and who must be in solidarity with whom? Yeah. I, so John Paul II, when he thought about solidarity said, it's this enduring commitment, right? To the common good for everyone, for every person. When I think about that in Craig Ford 21st century language, right? Solidarity means I am willing to do something that may inconvenience me in order for me to allow for you to thrive. That shows solidarity, right? Um, And we are living in a world where there are many choices that we are making that are showing the elderly, showing those who are, who are living with potential comorbidities and other pre-existing conditions, we're showing them that their lives do not matter as much as mine and what I might want to do. So, for example, people really want to get back to normal, right? Where normal means being able to go to the boardwalk or the riverwalk and to the bars and to all these places that represent for us the rest that comes from summer. But doing that involves, at this point, I think, the willful (laughs) lack of recognition for the fact that that endangers people, right? Especially when we recognize that, what, 30% of transmissions due to COVID-19 are from asymptomatic individuals, completely asymptomatic people, right? Um, I think if we recognize that, if, if I recognize in my heart, right, that if I just go to a bar, or if I just go to this restaurant, right, what I'm doing is saying, I'm willing to be an asymptomatic carrier and then run by someone and potentially infect them, put them in the hospital and potentially take them out of this world because I wanted to go out for a drink. And that's not solidarity, that's selfishness, right? It's so easy for us actually to value these people, to be in solidarity with them. What that means now is we sacrifice the joy of our summer. We decide not to go to the bar. We decide to wear our masks in public, you know? Masks are starting to look very, very classy and trendy. They're they're nice colors, you know, it's becoming a whole fashion thing, right? You can find a nice mask and go outside, right? You know, there are ways to do this that that we can do because we know that we want, to, we want to show people who are older, people who are vulnerable to this, particularly vulnerable to a severe version of this illness, that we care. And that's what staying at home means, right? That's what not going to the bars means. That's what wearing a mask means. And that's solidarity. I'm willing to inconvenience myself so that you can have the quality of life that you should have. Absolutely. I think that solidarity is extremely demanding. And I think that it's going to challenge um, what a lot of people consider normality mm-hmm. t- completely, radically. Um, and it is definitely bound in this idea of mutual thriving and mutual flourishing. And I'm happy that you really highlighted that, that it's about how can we envision the flourishing of everybody, even if it requires um, that I have to give something up. 
-hmm. right? And that's completely interwoven into the Christian story as well. So thank you for raising those points for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you're raising all the, the great principles of Catholic social teaching, so I'm just really following your great lead. We are thinking through this tradition together and what it, what it offers us and how it frames us right now, for sure. Um, so again, in this moment, um, there are a lot of people who I imagine might be asking themselves, what can I do? How can I do better? What is anti-racism? What are some practical pieces of advice that you would want folks to know who might be grappling with these kinds of questions? Yeah. Well, our, our concerns during this podcast, our conversation has taken us into the realm of COVID-19, right? And how that, and how COVID-19 is, is impacting the landscape of our common life. And you began with this image of how um, COVID-19 infections um, and talking about COVID-19 can't be separated from conversations about racial justice, or, and that's what the image of George Floyd represents, right? Um, conversations that 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 um, that are um, maybe seeming may seem to people unrelated are related, right? And so I think the one thing that I would encourage people to do, right, is if we are talking about the intersection of racism and COVID-19, and your reaction to listening to this podcast is what right the question is then how can i learn more about this right how can i learn about how racism is functioning and how can i learn how covid-19 is, is disproportionately affecting people of color because then that leads you away from perhaps thinking about racism according to that common sense way that i was talking about before of i have prejudice towards you know, black people, or I'm biased against black people, or, or I'll say a slur or, or commit a microaggression, right? It, it forces us to have a real hard conversation about policy, right? Which means that you're not just talking about COVID-19, you're not just talking about racism, you're talking about um, what sort of policy do we put in place, economic-wise, right, that can reverse or interact with, helpfully, or interact with getting or getting rid of, and you could say this this pandemic. How do we think at the intersection of the economics? How do we think at the intersection of public health? How do we think at the intersection of race? And then obviously we've been talking about this through a theological lens. And so I think it's an invitation to then say, I want to learn something about racism, and how do we get there? And 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 I think that is where we can turn to a variety of really awesome resources. And I think that, um, like for example, a great one um, that I've been recommending a lot to people, um, particularly if they are white identified and they're trying to think, like, what is this? What is this like? What is this about? Um, there's a great resource by Stephanie Edwards. Um, I'm trying to. Re I, I just have to look at the title real quick because I. I the title, she calls it One White Woman's Non-Exhaustive, Incomplete, Imperfect Guide to Anti-Racism. Um, and Stephanie Edwards works in the Boston, um, the, the BTI, so she's involved in, um, she's involved in a lot of conversation around uh, theological education in Boston, but she also has a background in social work. And she's doing this, this labor of trying to conduct people through a process that can be somewhat difficult. Right. The difficult process is education, but also confronting some of our assumptions. And that's, I think, the best type of work that we can do before we think about taking action. And that action for us is going to be how do we form our consciences as Catholics 
to think about what policies will that we want carrying us forward, particularly as we sit at the you know on the perch of a presidential election. So really it's about conscience formation. It's about gaining information. It's about being willing to challenge and be uncomfortable and, and learn about a new paradigm of thinking that may open up the connectivity of our world in ways you hadn't thought. You know, people say like, I'm, you know, socially, socially progressive, but fiscally conservative. And then you recognize that in a world that's as complicated as ours, that that designation is, is very difficult because every social policy has an economic dimension and vice versa. So, the question is to have an opposite perspective on that almost could be somewhat contradictory. So how do we learn and work through these contradictions? That's what great intersectional thinking does. And our Catholic social tradition, I think, um, gives us the, the way to, to start to do those things. It gives us the grounding and gives us the permission to say, if I want to follow Jesus, I have to do this work. Absolutely. Um, thank you for, uh, sharing that resource with all of our listeners. Um, and I also want to thank you for raising this point around consciousness formation and how we are continually transforming our internal disposition. Um, and I really liked that you ended with this question of how do we follow Jesus? Because I've been thinking a lot lately about the parable of the Good Samaritan mm-hmm. and about how in that parable, it would have been so insensitive if the Samaritan went up to the wounded man and said, you know, can you teach me how to be a good neighbor? And also, I hope that you're okay. And so we don't see that. We don't see that questioning of this hurting man in crisis. Instead, what we see is care and love and mercy, all of those things enacted and actualized as we grow in this notion of loving our neighbor. And I think that that parable speaks so deeply to where we are today and how we're asked to kind of live in relationship with each other. Um, So thank you for rooting us back into the Catholic social teaching tradition and for uh, allowing me to reflect more deeply on this idea of how we're called to love our neighbor and how that is part of the Christian vocation. Yeah. Before we, uh, pardon? Sorry. I was going to say, I was just going to add my teacher, one of my teachers, uh, Jim Keenan said that, you know, the lesson of the Good Samaritan is, are you willing to enter the chaos of another person's life, right? And that's not to say that our lives are not already chaotic, right? Like there is no way, like everyone's life is being upended by this virus, right? To extend on your Good Samaritan example, right? The Good Samaritan had problems in his own life too. It's not like he just popped out of heaven and started walking down the road. He had worries. He woke up in the morning. He had to figure out how to put food on the table. He was worried perhaps about the death or alien family member, worried about how he's going to make rent, pay the mortgage, keep the lights on. And then the Good Samaritan still said in the midst of all the problems, that he had. I want to enter the chaos of this other person's life, you know, and it just highlights what you said completely. Absolutely. I want to enter in and I want to care for you, this ethic of care. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Before we wrap up, are there any other thoughts or questions that you'd like to share? You opened up this podcast uh, asking how we can think about hope. And I do think that that is such an important note to conclude on. Um, I think we can, it's very easy to think that the world we're in is just doomed, 
I mean, you, you look at what the climate scientists are telling us, we're looking at the extreme division in our country and our political discourse and conversations. We think about all the factors in our lives right now, really because we're, we work in higher education, right? Like what is, what is college going to look like in four weeks? What will it look like in eight weeks? There's so much uncertainty. It's easy to just kind of say, I'm just gonna dig in and live the best life I can right now because life is, who knows what life is gonna look like, right? Um, and I think that the note of hope that Christians always have is that God can take what we offer and can transform it, right? So to use another parable, right? The loaves and the fishes, right? What we need to do as Catholics, I think, um, as a theologian is we need to offer something to God so that God can transform it and increase the impact of that. But we have to, we can't be afraid of offering that. And that offering is going to be wearing our mask. That offering is going to be, maybe I'm not gonna go on that vacation. Maybe I'm not gonna endanger this person, right? I'm gonna offer that. And then we know that we serve a God that can transform, that can multiply, right? And everyone is fed, right? The end of that, the end of that parable is clean up, took a long time because there was so much food, right? And so to see our world as on the brink of abundance rather than on the brink of despair, right? Is the, the shift in our mentality that says, I can do this, I can really do this. And we know that the God that we serve turns even death into life. So how can we do that? We know how to do that. We have to offer these, we have to support these policies that protect people. That is the resurrection. That is the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. And that's what we can do. We don't have to wait for our government officials to do that. The CDC doesn't have to give us a guide post for this. All we have to do is in our current world, find out what loaves and fishes we have to offer. And then we let God multiply that. Absolutely. We are a people of the resurrection. We are a people of hope. Um, and we are a people of hospitality. And so let us always pray for an increase in faith and in hope and in love. Uh, thank you so much, Craig, for this conversation. It has been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to God Pods. Thank you. For more Catholic faith resources, follow us at bc.edu backslash c21 or via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. <laughs>